Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Delighted to have you back with us. I am so excited to have the conversation with Dr. Mary Brandt, who is a professor of surgery at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, which is actually where I went to medical school. Before we get to the interview, just a couple of quick things I would like to please remind all of those of you who are fans of the show, please check out the new website. We went live about a week ago. The URL is the same, www.explorethespaceshow.com, but it is a brand new home for the show. It's incredibly exciting. I'm so proud of what we've been able to put together. The whole archive is there. This is episode 82. We've been doing this now almost four years. We've got 81 episodes in the archive. We've divided the show up into the four pillars. I'll ask you to go and take a look. I'm so excited about the way all of this wonderful material, all of these incredible conversations out at the interface of healthcare and society are coming together. So please go take a look at the website. Also, if you're a fan of the show, please email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. There is no greater thrill than connecting with people who have listened to the show, who enjoy the show, who are new to the show. I want to hear about what you're liking, what's resonating, if there's content you want more of, if there's things we can do differently. You know, I'm a, I'm a physician first. This is, this is something that I do as a passion, and I hope to be getting better at it, but feedback is really, really helpful. So if there's opportunities for us to get better, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have the opportunity to go on your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you download the show, please leave us a rating and a review. It makes a huge difference in the visibility of the show and it helps more people find the show as well. So if that's an opportunity that you can take that, I would really, really appreciate it. Today's show is really special. Dr. Mary Brandt is a professor of surgery, pediatrics, and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine and is in full-time clinical practice as a pediatric surgeon at Texas Children's Hospital. If you're not familiar with Texas Children's Hospital, it is one of the cornerstone institutions in the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical center in the world. It's You have to see the Texas Medical Center to believe it, and I I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit, but it takes up city block after city block after city block, and it is the most wonderful, exciting, dynamic, and really electric place to learn how to be a physician, to practice medicine, to teach medicine, to just be involved in the science, the philosophy, the wonder, and and the thrill of being a doctor. Uh, I was really fortunate. That's where I went to medical school. I was a medical student at Baylor College of Medicine, and I graduated in 03. And I actually had a lecture from Dr. Brandt a long time ago. And so it's been really, really exciting to reconnect. And Baylor is one of those places that's built on the titans of surgery and the practice of surgery. And so to get to interview a full professor of surgery on the show is, is just a real thrill. She has trained thousands of physicians who've gone on to practice medicine at the highest level all around the world, including, and I'll say this with great pride, a whole lot of my closest friends. I know them well. I know them personally. I know the types of doctors that they are. And it's because of people like Dr. Brandt that we have now several generations of extraordinary practitioners of medicine, not just surgery, um, but medicine as well. She's received pretty much every teaching award you can receive at Baylor, and it's well-deserved. She's still in active clinical practice, both as a teaching faculty and getting in the OR with the med students, the residents, and the fellows. She has also really made herself very, very forward-facing on social media. And that role has really collided with something that happened last week, and this is really the crux of what we're going to be talking about. There are a number of public health issues 
in America over the years where physicians have been vocal. There are less where physicians have been both vocal and organized. And now because of one tweet that was put up last week by the National Rifle Association, where they described physicians as being self-interested and asked American physicians to, quote, stay in your lane, unquote, American physicians have really taken that as a rallying cry and have, over the last week, built a viral movement with the hashtag, this is our lane, or it is my lane. And Dr. Brandt was actually right at the tip of the spear with that. She immediately posted on her really active and interesting social media feed, at Dr. MLB on Twitter, which is DRMLB on Twitter, a really, really elegant series of posts listing out the evidence of why exactly gun violence is a real scourge in our society and the role that physicians play in trying to address it as a public health crisis. She also helped create those hashtags that have now gone viral and are getting thousands and thousands of tweets a day and pictures of surgeons who have blood on their legs and their surgical caps and all of these things and the stories that they have to tell and the, the families that they now have to go and meet with. We are organizing around this. It's now being covered by CNN. It's being covered by NBC. It's being covered by NPR. It's being covered by news organizations in Europe. Something is happening. And it's really, really important. And it's really, really exciting. And there's no one better to come and talk with us about this than Dr. Mary Brandt. Dr. Brandt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm uh, so glad to be here. And thank you for taking this on. So let's start from the part where we talk about the role that gun violence, gun trauma, penetrating trauma has played in your career as a surgeon. You've been a surgeon for a long time. Uh, I remember when I was at Baylor and I was in you know, the Bentob emergency room and in all of the different places that you get to train, a lot of the core principles of surgery, the core principles of trauma management, the core principles of resuscitation management and all of that sort of stuff, the core principles of critical care, really, I learned by managing patients who'd been shot. What role in your career has the ripple effect of someone being shot, someone being hit with a bullet, played in your development as a surgeon, your development as a physician, and your development as a teacher? Wow. So I think um, everyone and surgery is exposed to trauma. So we'll start there because it's one of the things surgeons do, right? If you happen to be trained in a major urban center, you're going to get exposed to a very, very high volume of of extreme trauma. That's often penetrating trauma, knives and guns, uh, and more and more commonly guns. But I think there's this misconception that it only happens in big cities because no matter where surgeons end up, uh, in rural areas, in farming communities, there are gun accidents, there are hunting events, there are suicides, there are still gun violence is pervasive. It's hard to even articulate the quantity of it. And I think that's one of the things that has happened um, with this viral on, on social media is our world, which is extremely personal. So these patients have names and they have families in the waiting rooms and, and, they are not just statistics and physicians, surgeons have to deal with that on a day-to-day basis, but the rest of the world doesn't have the, the ability, if you will, to understand the human part of this. So it's really why I think physicians in general and surgeons in particular got so angry um, at the NRA because you, you kind of 
it just exposed that human element to it that, that we then turned around and had to start sharing because we want everyone to understand these, this is not just numbers. Let's talk about this concept of sharing and the way that you and now thousands of physicians in the United States primarily, uh, there's, there's an interesting juxtaposition where international surgeons are commenting on this and they're all saying the same thing. I don't see gun trauma. I see accidents, I see car accidents, I see broken bones. I wish I could jump in on this movement, but in Australia, we don't see gun trauma. In Japan, we don't see gun trauma. In Germany, we just don't see it. I, I saw it in training when I was in the United States. I came home, I don't see it anymore. But here in the United States, now we have surgeons who really are leveraging the power of social media to do exactly what you just said, they're sharing. And what they're doing is sharing pictures of themselves in the way all identifying information of any patients or anything like that or their institution they're sharing pictures of a surgical of their of their pant leg of their scrubs and they're covered in blood or the floor of the resuscitation room covered in blood or the one from yesterday that you and I were talking about and that we were both sharing on social media of a surgical fellow at UCLA who's still got his mask on and his visor and a surgical cap and he's just been sprayed with blood and he now has to go and tell a family that their 16-year-old who was shot in the chest has died. Have physicians in your career ever been able to do this sort of sharing on such a visceral level? I'm not really familiar with any other episode that's done this. And I think that, you know, there's just a point where that boundary that's keeping everyone else from understanding kind of had to come down a little bit. Yeah. I, I yeah. will point out in my... What, in my um, my original tweets was, you know, the NRA said basically not just we need to stay in our lane, but we were um, self-serving or self-absorbed and, and we didn't consult anyone. And that's what really made me mad and everyone else. So my first tweet was actually that I did consult the children who were injured and paralyzed and their parents who had lost children. And then I followed that with a series of tweets that actually had PubMed abstracts, so data. There, so there's two things going on. There's actually the data of this. This is such an emotional, volatile, and political discussion. And it's really a scientific issue about a public health problem and a human issue about these human beings with names and families who are not other. They're not, you know, they're absolutely some bad guys. I'm not going to argue with anybody about that. The people I see are people's children, brothers, mothers, fathers, they're still human beings who now are dead. I think having those two focuses, how we're going to deal with this scientifically to inform this public health problem and how we're going to convey to the American public that this is not just statistics. The way that you're breaking it into those two arms, it's, it's incredibly well-informed. It's really intelligent. I think that it's going to be a combination of the two, as you say, do you think that one of those two arms is going to drive the narrative or maybe are we going to alternate a little bit? It feels like right now we're in the phase of using the emotionality to raise the conversation to kind of get people fired up, right? It's these pictures that are going around. It's physicians, you know, using the hashtag, one of which you created. It's, it's the physician, you know, uh, Dr. Sacron going on CNN talking not just about gun trauma at Johns Hopkins, but about the fact that he was shot when he was 18 years old it's that emotionality, but we're going to need to layer in that data. We can't just be here beating our chests. Are we going to be alternating these two things or is this going to be like a relay race where we're going to use the, we're going to stoke the fire and then we're going to kind of pass the baton and let the science really start to drive the narrative. 
I, I hope it's the latter. As, yeah. You know, human beings respond to stories. Yes. You know, the data, that, that's just the way we're wired, right? And so when I tell the story of, of the little boy that was laying in bed with his father who was reading him a bedtime story, guns started going off in the neighborhood. And so the father moved to the other side of the little boy to get between him and the wall. And a bullet came through the wall through the father's chest and into the little boy who I took care of, and the father died. That kind of story, this is, this is what we're talking about, that, that huge loss of, of human life and potential, and just there's not a single human being who thinks that's okay. There's just not. And so instead of yelling at each other, we have to get on this common ground of stories about these human beings we're treating and then once we're all on that page, that this is no different than when people died all the time in car accidents and we decided we needed seatbelts. It's no different. This is exactly the same. That dispassion. This is never about taking away people's guns. This is, you know, my brother, uh, my nephews are all hunters. They're responsible people. But guns are a different thing than other weapons. And we have to be logical about this public health issue and we need to tell these stories to have this move from a political discussion to a public health discussion and this is no different than cars and seatbelts we have to have the conversation on that level what that means is we actually have to do the research we have to fund the research and the whole dickey amendment and and which has been overturned or it's now allowable but there's no funding we have to recognize that this is one of the greatest public health crises of our times and we need to fund this research and figure out ways to tackle this and there are ways you really provoked a response in me by by framing this around the power of storytelling and and that concept of the power of storytelling that's why explore the space exists that's a passion of mine since i was a little kid you know the the power of the oral tradition i mean it's in our human dna that we relate through storytelling and and to connect those two things really resonates with me which then brings us to the part where i told people that i was interviewing you and and they all said you know mark you're going to be talking with a pediatric surgeon so she's going to have stories about gun violence that's happened to children that's going to be really hard i don't want to hear it so we have to hear it if it's the stuff that we don't want to hear especially when we're trying to you know build a backbone of this around storytelling i think speaking with a surgeon who works with families whose children have been shot and survived children who've been shot and died is really really important what what is happening to the young people in this country with respect to guns and gun violence it's so devastating, and, and there are stories. And I, you know, every surgeon um, has the stories that never go away. And I, I suspect that most people don't understand that, that we live with these screams echoing in our head from the mothers, the images. It's something that we have to learn to process and that we help each other process. It's no different than other high trauma professions like being an EMT or being a soldier or but it is uh, it is very very hard not not too long ago I took care of a child and I, I did treat this um, uh, as well with who was lying in bed with his father who was reading him a bedtime story and guns started going off outside the house and the father moved 
to the other side of the sun in the bed, so to put his body between the sun and the and the wall. And a bullet came through the wall, and it passed through the father's chest and into the child, who I then took care of, and the father died. And this little boy not only was injured by the bullet, but watched his father die, and watched the family screaming and the ambulance arriving. And it's just, it, I think it's so hard for people to understand this human and emotional side to this this horrible public health problem we have. I remember when I was a medical student, I was at Bentob, which is the main public hospital in, in the Texas Medical Center, along with Memorial Hermann, and they both have huge trauma centers. Houston has these two massive trauma centers within maybe a quarter mile or a half mile apart, and they're both packed and busy all the time. A teenager was brought into the resuscitation area who'd been hit with an AK-47, and what those bullets did to that young man, you know, I won't forget the way the emergency physician sat down with the family, the look on their face, even though they knew the the hope that maybe he wasn't gone. And then their response when he had to tell them that he was gone, you don't forget it. Um, it's just, it, 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 it breaks the heart of everyone involved, but it destroys a family. It just destroys them. I, I don't think that can be overemphasized that that sudden cessation of life because of a bullet. There's something about it that's everyone it's so futile it's so it's so insane but it's also so destructive that when they see their loved one again they're so shattered they being the person who's been shot they're just they're 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 dismantled and it's it's horrifying it's absolutely horrifying well you bring up you bring up another very important point and i i don't know how we're going to navigate this but i think we need to the american public i think believes that bullets are like what you see in the movies that is not what it is. No. And there is such a difference between um, standard firearms and these high-velocity military weapons. It, it, is, it is, I can't, I'm not even going to describe it because even though I would love for everyone listening to have a mental image, but um, it, is so dis- it is so horrible that I, I just don't even think you and I should de- describe it. Yeah. We, yeah. Have, we have to differentiate between uh, types of weapons. That's it. Is just uh, these high-velocity weapons are simply unsurvivable, and that's why the military designed them. That's what they're designed to do. And so, this is not a matter of protecting yourself. This is not a matter of gun rights. This is like everyone driving a Maserati without, you know, at 150 miles an hour without a seatbelt on the freeways all the time. I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? Right. As technology advances, you have to put some parameters around it to keep people around it safe. And I think that the, the example of, you know, automobiles is exactly the same, right? From the model T onwards, they started to realize, Hey, people are dying in these things. This isn't like a stagecoach or this isn't like riding a bicycle or this is very, very different, right? The velocity again is very different. We're going to need to put some safety measures in place or we're going to lose people. Um, I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that we shouldn't share the graphic nature of this, obviously not advocating that we share pictures of the patients themselves, but I think verbal descriptions of what we see, I do think is important. I think people need to understand this. Everyone that I've talked with about this has said, I don't want to hear the stories. Well, guess what? You're going to have to, especially if you still think that this is a good idea. If you're going to have to hear some of these stories. If that's, what's going to change your mind, that's, what's going to happen because 
there's just no other way around it, that there has to be some component of the storytelling. And I get frustrated because the other component of this, and I know that as your career has evolved, this is becoming a larger and larger part of the your own educational arc and the work that you're doing in pursuing a graduate degree in divinity and also really focusing on physician wellness. We are dealing with another healthcare crisis in the United States, and it's one around physician burnout, physician fatigue, physician suicide. This plays a role. When you're a doctor and you are trained by the best people, when Mary Brandt has spent hours and hours training you to save lives, to rebuild, to reconstruct, and somebody comes in who's been sprayed with gunfire and you're totally helpless and they bleed to death right in front of you, it's it's so destructive to everything that you are as a physician. As you said, the screams never leave you. The smell never leaves you. It's harming the profession of medicine too. In your work in physician wellness and your studies of human spirituality and divinity, where, do, where does that connect? Where are the stories around what's happening to the physicians who are doing their best to hold back the ocean? Oh, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, I'm just starting – uh, my studies um, at ILF uh, School of Theology in Denver, actually, I realized that a whole lot of what was going on in physician burnout was actually kind of becoming an echo chamber. And with all due respect to everyone trying to stem the tide of this this epidemic, it's really not about um, doing more yoga and eating better. Um, and, and most physicians you know, there's all the the discussion about self-care and building resilience, and those are absolutely necessary, but they're totally not sufficient. And I began to realize that what we actually have in medicine, and I think the, the gun violence epidemic is, is kind of a good symbol or a, a good, as you said, kind of tip of the spear of the problem here, is that it's a disconnect between why we go into medicine and who we are as physicians, what our core values are, which is to save lives and relieve suffering, to heal the injured and sick and relieve suffering. And then we find ourselves in working places and situations where, for whether it's business issues in the hospital or regulatory issues or, um, or public health issues like this, we now have a conflict in our core values of what we need to do as a physician and, and what we're able to do. And I think that that's a, a spiritual issue, not a religious issue. I, you know, this is not about religion. This is about core values and meaning. And I personally did not have the vocabulary I needed to think about that uh, concept. So that's why I went back to school was to try to get those concepts and that vocabulary so I can start thinking about this a different way. You're going to find that in the next phase of your career, that's going to be some of the most vital work that you do because I would posit that no physician has that vocabulary. All of the the traumatic things that I saw when I was a medical student, and this was, you know, this was back in, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003. It's been a long time. You know how many times I got to debrief about that with anybody? Zero. It never happened. They became the stories that my friends asked me to tell, like, hey, what kind of crazy stuff are you seeing, you know, as a medical student and things like that? The, the residents and the fellows that were the ones, I mean, I'm, I'm in the room, you know, I'm holding a clamp. I might be doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But the residents, the fellows and the attendings that are actually in there doing an open thoracotomy, which is where you open up somebody's chest in a resuscitation room and put your hand on their heart and pump it and try to put a clamp on a spraying blood vessel so that the person doesn't die right in front of you. They finish one way or the other. The patient goes to the intensive care unit or the patient dies. They go and they talk with the family. They update them and they just go right back to work. And that happens day after day after day after day after day. 
There's no vocabulary around it. There's no debriefing around it. And to think that that doesn't inform the type of person they're going to be, the effect it's going to have on their social life, their marriage, their relationship with their family and their kids, we're insane. We're insane if we think that's the case. And I'm curious, in your career, how many of your trainees have come to you and said, Dr. Brandt, I saw something yesterday and I'm really struggling with it. A kid died in my arms who'd been shot and I don't know what to do. Does that, does that happen and does it happen enough? You know, I think that um, we have learned a great deal from the time. Um, certainly I trained and, and I've made a big effort, but so have so many of my colleagues. We, you know, human beings heal by telling stories. That's right. Absolutely. And so right. even though there, there may not be, um, a formal debriefing, there is a discussion. And I, there's a great quote, I'm trying to remember who, who said it, but I saw in an article that said uh, role models um, are the people that teach us how to deal with the things that change us. And so I, I think that my role as a role model in this is to simply cry when it's time to cry or to you know, put a hand on the medical student or resident and say, that was really tough. You know, and then open that door for people to talk. And I, so I do think we're better at it than we used to be. And we, you know, everyone's going to heal a little bit differently. But uh, the most important message that we're saying in this conversation is the American public doesn't know this. Right. They, they probably have never thought about sort of the stress that it goes on in the hospital when there's one tweet that just actually broke my heart too. Was uh, a mother who was shot when she was pregnant. Oh God, I saw um, that one too. That uh, you know they had to deliver the baby who died, but basically died protecting the mother because yep. the bullet was the baby. That just oh my God, that just totally broke my heart. And that just happened. It's it's a, it's a strange social movement because it's the one where you have to cover your eyes, but then you also have to crack your fingers so you can keep looking. But, yeah, like actually, can we can we talk a little bit about what people could do or what what we need to think about? It's, you know, now we've sort of we've we've exposed to the American people with this movement, um, this hashtag that these are people, not statistics. Right. So, like you said, if we're going to crack our fingers and get going, um, I do think there's some things we need to think about. That's exactly where this conversation's heading. <laughs> of course, we can talk about that. that. That's the whole part. That's the whole point. So we've we've laid this groundwork, right? We've we've discussed the effect that this social movement is having. I've had the opportunity to express some of my frustration and have a little bit of therapeutic conversation with you, which is again, it's it's always helpful. I'm I'm 20 years removed from those stories, and it's still really helpful. But that being said, we do need to think very thoughtfully and deliberately. We have stoked a fire. The fire is burning. That's good. Now we have to think about how do we keep it burning, but also how do we keep it burning responsibly? How do we do this in a manner where people who will look to the profession of medicine for leadership can look at it and say, this is responsible. This is not divisive. This is thoughtful. This is respectful, but it's also urgent. It's also important and action needs to be taken. How do we begin to move from phase one into phases two, three, and four? So I there's a, there's a things that are very straightforward that we need to tackle and the first and most important thing I think is we all no matter where you stand on the issue of of gun control or gun legislation or how we're going to deal with this need to come to the table together and be kind to each other. Yeah. We need to stop yeah. yelling at each other. Um and because we are dealing with people's children that are dying 
And they're even my most, uh, my friends that are completely opposite of me in the spectrum. When we sit down and talk about these children, we are on the same page. So we need to get on that page together, which may be what, what the doctors are doing right now. And then we've got to have some look at this as a public health problem. So there's a really uh, interesting and wonderful uh, site, which I will, will plug a little bit, called gunviolencearchive.org. It's a nonprofit that very, very carefully validates any report of gun injury or death and then reports it so that you can have an up-to-the-minute number on how many people have been killed and, and injured in the United States. So as of today, in 2018, there have been 3,037 children. So you can go on the website and see what it is up to the minute, because it'll be more when you look, I promise. There have been uh, over 12,000 deaths um, from guns in the United States. But here's the other part that people forget. That's one-third of deaths by guns. The other two-thirds are suicides. And so this is one very, very important thing we need to understand. Human beings, when they have impulsive anger or impulsive the grief or, you know, I just want to end this, if there's a gun in front of them at that moment, they are likely to ha- kill themselves or kill someone else. So one of the things we have to look at is what do we do? There, there, will, always, there will be people who deliberately plan things. That's going to be harder. But for the big majority of people where this is an impulsive action, we have to figure out how to simply put the brakes on it for just the few moments it takes for things to cool down, and that will decrease the risk that someone's going to die. That's particularly true in areas of domestic violence. So people, this and how we deal with this and how we figure out how to identify who should have guns and who shouldn't, that's going to be complicated. We do need to walk that path carefully together. But we all agree that someone who who is in the midst of a huge domestic violence uh, issue that has a gun that they can grab, that's not locked up, they are going to grab that loaded gun and they're going to shoot it. And so first thing is, how do we get around, you know, getting the, the loaded gun out of children's reach and impulsive adults reach so we've got to think about this like a seatbelt you know what's the appropriate way to allow people to keep their guns but to not have it be so available that there can be an accident or an impulsive shooting as i'm hearing you discuss this i'm sort of seeing the building blocks stack up i think that you're you're right that it needs to start from a place where there's at least some civil discourse. I think that that's really important that we at least start from a place of mutual respect and say, this is going to be a conversation. We don't have to agree right away, but we have to agree that we're going to have a civil conversation. That we, This can't be divisive. I think that this whole debate for such a long time has been marred by us against them. And it has been very, very adversarial. And then I, what I'm hearing you describe, and I think is also correct, that we'll need to move very quickly, I think, away from the anecdotal and start looking at hard evidence. You know, in the, in, in the medical sciences, we don't implement new therapies. We don't new, do new procedures or medications because of an anecdote. We get data. We do studies. That's the way you affect change. You prove it. You, you use statistical validation to demonstrate a hypothesis has been tested, and you do the best you can to validate or disprove it. 
there might be some components of this that you and I may think are correct and they may not be. And that is okay. You have to do those studies. You have to build that weight of evidence. And then once you have that evidence, you got to think about how to deploy it, right? We tackled this looking at the scourge of heart disease in the United States. Well, guess what? We studied it. We tried a whole bunch of hypotheses. We tried new medications and procedures. Some of them have worked beautifully. Some of them were total busts, but we can now affect change when somebody has a heart attack. We can keep them alive. We can keep them alive for a long, long, long time and live fruitful, normal lives. That's the same natural progression we're going to need to do here. And I think that that's going to be the nuance, especially for the physicians. We're in that place right now where we're being very provocative and I think there's value in that, but we will need to make that transition soon to sit at the table in an organized fashion and to hopefully be allowed to do what we do best, which is study and test and learn. Yeah, and there's, there are already data that are pretty clear that anything you do that takes a gun temporarily, so it's not taking away guns. I just want to keep saying this to the people that come back and, and argue with us from that point of view. This is about how you just put the brakes yeah. on yeah. A, a situation that's very volatile, whether it's someone who has gotten very drunk and and there's a loaded weapon in front of them and they just decide to end it, or whether it's a 14-year-old shooting their 12-year-old brother, as one other surgeon reported on Twitter. You know, how do you just simply take these things out of the immediate access? And that's so I think that's really important. And there are data already that say that that works. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point, actually. That data does exist. You're right. And you laid it out very, very elegantly. I think that it's going to be continuing to emphasize that this isn't just us being angry or being self-interested or whatever the case may be. This is, look, we're speaking based off of good data that already exists. This is actually something I really would hope the NRA would embrace. I, I really want gun owners to say, I don't want my eight-year-old to find my gun. You know, and and I will tell you the responsible gun owners I know, they do not have their guns where their eight-year-old can find it or where their 16-year-old who has just broken up with their girlfriend, the guns are not available. And I really want the gun owners to own this and to and to move it forward because that's that that would be the biggest change. At a population level though too, I think physicians can be drivers of that because when we're in the room with patients, we are able to talk about whatever we want to talk about, whether it's substance use disorders or sexuality or managing their acute or chronic medical conditions. Where do you think we stand with American physicians having conversations around guns in the house, access to guns, exactly what you're describing, responsible home gun ownership? I, I think that's a – I ask every single patient I see, are there guns in your house? Yeah. yeah. And if they say yes, I ask if they're locked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had that conversation with them. I, I would love to see every physician in the United States as our next movement – take that on and we'll have to maybe we can come up with a good hashtag on this show. Say, I think we need a hashtag for that. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag ask them to save a life or something. I don't know what it'll hashtag be. Ask uh, about guns or something. Yeah. Well, it's ask to save a life. That's, there you go. go. Ask to save a life. That's, that's pretty good. Actually. Try, try yeah. that one out today. I'm going to go tweet that when we're done. Um, it's, you know, that's so simple and you're absolutely right. We have total control over that. And that is not a political thing. That's simply educating our patients that, if there's a gun out and there's a child or who has any kind of 
depression or, I mean, there's all kinds of people that have a guns out. It can cause harm that it would not if it were locked up. And I think that's, that's really important. So as you continue to watch this movement evolve, you're going to be involved. You're going to be a part of it. You're going to stay in the mix. What steps do you think are going to be meaningful over the next few months? What are the things that you would hope to see as uh, an American citizen, as a voter, as a surgeon, as an educator, and as a part of our society? What are the things that you would like to see happen over the course of the next three, six, 12 months of this discourse? You know, the most important thing is we have to understand that this is not a political issue. There is no one, no physician who sees these children and young adults and anyone dying of gun wounds that thinks this is political. And so what I really, really would hope is that we find a way to sit down at a table together, find common ground, and start just with small things. And as I said, I would love the NRA and gun owners to take ownership of this and figure out how to help us prevent at least the accidents and the suicides, the impulsive suicides, and to not have everything that we say that's data-driven be thrown back in our face by, in a political way, and vice versa. I think there's people on the side of gun control who also are, are not being kind to people who think differently, and I think we just need to be kind. We need to start by being kind, being at the table together, and trying to save lives together. You're going to be at the forefront of that. I think that the, the narrative that you put out on social media and the generations of physicians that you're going to continue to educate, that's going to help drive this. If people want to follow you on social media, if they want to read the work that you're doing, if they want to see how this is evolving, how do they find you? So I'm at DRMLB, which uh, is so Dr. MLB, as you said, um, on Twitter. I also have a blog called wellnessrounds.org where I will periodically post on issues. I haven't posted uh, yet on the gun violence issue because this has happened so quickly. So those are the two primary ways. Well, we will obviously continue to follow along. This has been a really wonderful opportunity for us to learn from you and to gain some insights from what you've been able to do over the scope of your career and continue to do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.